Hi, and welcome to House Call, our podcast designed to help you navigate the New York City real estate market. I'm Andrew Fishkind, as always, here with my co-hosts and partners, Carl Eckroth and Emily Margolin. Hello. Hey, everyone. Hi. We're here today with attorney Ira Sessler of Sessler & Sessler, who is, amongst other things, a real estate attorney here in New York. I was advised when I was much younger that as soon as I owned a piece of property, I should have a will. I would say yes, and let me expand. There are two kinds of assets, those that pass by operation of law, such as bank accounts, checking accounts, savings accounts, annuities, 401ks, IRAs. If you have these things, you probably recall when you opened the account, they gave you a piece of paper, I'll call it a name beneficiary form, and you're able to put down names and percentages And that's who will take that asset upon your death. So those kinds of assets don't need to go into a will. But hard assets that really can't be titled in a way that will naturally dictate the passage of asset upon death. That's not to say if you were to buy a piece of property with a partner and you had it as joint tenancy with right of survivorship, then the deed would dictate who actually gets that property. But as an individual, then yes, a will is a place where you can say, my property located at 123 Main Street to this party. What about life estate versus putting the property into a trust? A life estate will allow the deed to dictate um, ownership. So when you do the life estate, you're actually giving the property to the, I'll I'll say the child at this point, Um, Only upon your death or the sale of the property will that life estate be extinguished. Uh, The presumption is you're going to hold it until death. So then the child then owns that property free and clear, unencumbered by the life estate. They can do whatever they want with it. A trust is another good vehicle of transferring real estate or, or really wealth of any kind. We just need to title that property into the name of the trust. And by using a grantor trust, you're able to retain the stepped up basis. As a matter of fact, Internal Revenue Service has new rules this spring that actually allow stepped up basis in irrevocable trust, as long as there's certain language in the trust that allows for the inclusion of the value of that property in your taxable estate. That's something that we didn't necessarily have access to with regard to irrevocable trust in the past. And actually, I, this is all fascinating to me because I am one of these people. So let's get some real-life free legal advice here. No, I'll tell you my story, and you can talk about what's wrong with what we've I'm done. I'm sure you're not the only one. I'm sure you're right, actually. So I own the townhouse that my mother lives in. I own it in my revocable trust, which is where most of my assets sit. And the way that my will is written is that if I predecease my mother, everything that I have goes into a living trust for her before it gets distributed mm-hmm. down the line. And if she predeceases me, then of course it skips that steps and just goes down the line. Mm-hmm. That's basically the whole structure of my... So the property is already in the irrevocable trust. A re- revocable, the revocable. Revocable so trust. The property is already in trust. Assets, right. Okay. And all your other assets, if you were to pass you want held for the benefit of your mom. I own the condo. I pay the fees. So I feel like if I die before my mother, I would just assume have everything available to her until she dies and then let the rest of it go. That's fairly common. Okay. Yeah. Nothing unusual. You did good, Andrew. I guess I did. I guess I, except I could have separated out the trust, but being that it was my mother that lives there, I didn't, I wasn't as concerned. I didn't view that as a traditional investment. Now you can go one step further. Mm -hmm. You can start now by placing all your assets into a revocable trust. Trust, 
so that when you pass, you may very well avoid the probate process already. Just about everything I own is in that same revocable trust, actually. Right. That so I, then I what you that. need is a pour-over will, which simply says everything gets poured into my revocable trust. So in the event you forgot about an account or opened up a Christmas account so you can get that free set of knives and you forgot about it and actually put it in your own name, there's a way of going through a quick probate process, getting access to that, and then pouring it into oh, the so revocable trust. Oh, so that says that, interesting. That's, okay, because I'm sure there are a few things that have not been converted to the trust yet. Oh, I was expecting a whole dissertation on what I did wrong, and it sounds like I did it okay. No, you might want to clean it up a mm-hmm. bit to make it easier on those who might administer your estate, but I think you're on the right track. Okay, that's it. And then, this may not be your area of expertise, but I know it's something I looked at while I was doing this. So if you have any thoughts on TOD versus a revocable trust in terms of the value of it for an estate planning purpose. When you say TOD, you're talking about bank accounts? Bank accounts, investment accounts, so So time of death, right? That's Right, so if you have TOD on a bank account of some kind, that's gonna avoid probate. If you have a name beneficiary form on any of the other types of accounts that we talked about, that's also going to avoid probate. Gotcha. And just to, of course, keep this personal on our podcast. So that's, my bank accounts are definitely not in the revocable trust. So those are the things that I should TOD then. Yes. Okay. Great. That's, uh, as I said, it's, uh, it was germane to the conversation and I'll always take free legal opinions. You're on the right track. <laughs> when it comes to estate planning and co-ops, I have a couple questions. One specific one, and it really relates to, is it that different than, say, somebody who owns the co-op condo and is planning in their state and hoping to pass along to their child? Because we know New York City co-ops have certain restrictions to buying, right? You've got to have a certain amount of equity. You have to have a certain amount of post-closing liquidity. Many of these co-ops have much, much more stringent requirements to entry than banks do. With that being said, if somebody owns a co-op, maybe they purchased it 50 years ago on Park Avenue for 50000 It's worth $4 million today. The estate of this person is not in any situation where they would qualify. If it was a regular on-market co-op for sale, they would never qualify for that purchase. Are, are there things that, that somebody who owns that co-op has to be on the lookout in terms of when that transference happens? Is, does the co-op board get involved and say, whoa, 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 the, these kids don't have the money to actually afford this moving forward? So I have a lot of clients who have highly appreciated assets, and including cooperative apartments, And they say to me, I want so-and-so to inherit that apartment. And so there are two categories, partners and spouses. So in a co-op, when you leave that co-op to any named individual, they're really going to have to go through a similar process of filling out applications and vetting and so on. When you leave it to a partner or spouse, I've never heard of a co-op that puts a partner or spouse into the street absent failure to pay maintenance and assessments and so on. But when you leave it to a child, uh, I tell clients there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to live there. They're going to have to go through a a stringent application process if they actually want to move in. Since you're giving them the apartment, there's likely not going to be any financing, but they're still, like you said, going to have to demonstrate liquidity requirements and whatever else is important to that co-op to make sure that they're the right fit to live in that unit. If they don't get approval to live there, then of course they have control over it and they will have to put it up for sale and sell it. And if the co-op has a somewhat liberal sublet policy three or four years, they'd have that option before they sold it if they had to, if they wanted. I do want to say some co-ops do allow trust purchase or trust transfer once you're a shareholder. So you can potentially purchase it 
then transfer the shares into oh, a Oh, I've done many of those. Yeah. When we talk about estate planning, part of the estate planning process is to make it as easy on you know whoever's going to administer your estate after the facts. I very recently have had many co-ops that are being transferred into revocable trusts. The big issue for the co-op is to make sure that there's no misunderstanding as to who's responsible to pay maintenance and assessments and, and then to maintain the unit and abide by the house rules. So what usually happens is besides your rather standard revocable trust, there's often a section which could be couple paragraphs to a few pages. It really just depends on management and the co-op's attorney. And they put in language regarding your obligation now as trustee because you're officially not the shareholder and you're not really the tenant any longer individually under the proprietary lease. Oh. So they want you to acknowledge in writing your obligations. And they're all the same. They're not more, but all the same obligations that you had as the primary tenant under the proprietary lease. As we're fond of telling our audience very often, not every co-op is the same. Certainly do your diligence. Always ask those questions. Can you do trust? Can you transfer into a trust? Because not no, no two co-ops are alike. Absolutely. And then to kind of come full circle back to where we started a little bit, if somebody was going to be buying a condo today, personal use condo, not for investment properties, just personal use from an estate planning perspective, would you recommend they buy that in a trust just as an individual in an LLC, or does it really not matter if it's for personal use at, at this Well, point? if you're buying a condo to live in yourself, right. you, your family, I would probably buy it in your individual name. Okay. Um, and my primary thought is if you're not going to rent it and you're just going to live there and you're going to sell it when it no longer serves your purpose, as it appreciates, you want to keep in mind that we now have a individual $250,000 capital gains ex exemption. And if you're, if you're two parties on the deed, it's a $500,000 capital gains exemption. And that really applies to individuals. So you don't want to forgo that. So if you buy your condo for a million dollars and you're in it with a partner and you later sell it for a million five, you're going to pay no capital gains tax on the 500,000 appreciation in the unit. And that's not true if it's an LLC. Oh, it's not. Well, it wouldn't be with an LLC. I'd have to do the research to see if it also holds as a revocable trust because gotcha. you're still using your own feral ID number. But again, the costs of trust, the cost of LLCs, the way you set the tone for the question, it's your individual condo with no right. particular intent to use it for investment Correct. purposes. I don't see any reason why you wouldn't have that in your individual name. Because the vast majority of our business is exactly that, people looking right. for individual apartments. And then, of course, the next step is investment property. So it's not really that many right. people who are coming at it from an investment, estate planning, excuse me, from an estate right. planning. But sometimes it changes because sure. there were many people over the last 20 years that purchased condos that suddenly found in the last year, year and a half, that the rental income that they could get on that was way beyond their wildest expectation. So rather than sell it and then move on, they rented it. Mm -hmm. And it had turned out to be actually one of their most lucrative investments. And you'd suggest somebody like that then transfer it to? Then, then I might transfer it at that point. Okay. If you're, so you, you can do it later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's another thing I wanted to mention when it comes to second homes or investment properties. If you own them out of state, so if you live in New York, you're living in Manhattan, and you decide you want to have a ski house in Vermont. Um, 
If you want that all on your own individual name, that's fine. That's your personal choice. But what happens is probate always occurs in the county in which you last resided. So it would be New York County in this example. But in order to sell that property in Vermont, you're actually going to have to hire a law firm in Vermont to go through what's called ancillary probate, where you're going to get the surrogate's court in the county in which the property is located in Vermont to acknowledge the New York letters testamentary that are issued by the New York surrogate. And then someone in Vermont, title companies in Vermont, will rely on your authority as the administrator of this person's estate to sell that property. If that property was held in trust, you would avoid all that. You would avoid the second probate and the cost and the delay that's involved in that because the trustee, by virtue of the, their appointment in the trust itself, simply provides that the title, that along with the death certificate, makes you, gives you the ability to move forward and act and sell that property. I believe if two parties are on a deed and they're on as tenants in common, so they actually have a bifurcated interest in the property, when you sell it, I think you retain your 250000 per person as to your interest. So you might have, you may not use it all. It doesn't mean you own it in 50-50. One moment might own 80%, one might own 20%. You get to apply it to 50. You don't get to commingle it. If you were a married couple, you absolutely get the whole file. Right. That's, I, we, I, I know I often refer so to it. Don't put that in because okay. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> okay. I haven't faced that. Okay. And I will say this, and you can put this in somewhere, that these situations are fluid. The rules change, the laws change, cases come up, there's interpretations. When, any, when anyone comes to me and they say they want to do this, generally I say, look, I'm going to speak in generalities, but at the same time, we need to do a little research. Sure. And that's why I say a lot of the questions we're asking you, it's really, what's your opinion on this? Because right. I'm sure specific. Yeah, well, I don't want to guess at it. Well, no, and also, I, that. I think that's a good plug for you. We'll have your information on the site. But if anybody has any particular questions, they can give you a call and perhaps work with you on, uh, yeah, that's fine. on whatever is there. Yeah. considering doing Yeah, and I will say this. Everyone is welcome to call me, whether it's real estate related, estate planning, asset protection. So the way I operate is I feel like I have to gain your trust. I will actually give you time. I will talk to you. I will take notes. I'll even do research. And I don't bill for that. Um, my feeling is if I can't solve a problem, then I don't deserve to be paid. So it's such time that we come up with an action plan that's actually going to solve a problem or meet a need that you have. Then we'll talk about the work. And once you improve it, you want to continue to work with me, then we'll move forward. Great. Well, this was awesome. Thank you. As Emily mentioned, we will, if you would like to reach out to Ira, feel free to contact us. We'll have his information on our site, but feel free to reach out directly. We'd be happy to connect you. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Ira. This has been great.